enter a new phase today in our study on transformation. Last fall, we looked at how broken we are. Now we've begun in this year to look at how Jesus Christ transforms us in our salvation for the here and the now. And that transformation includes being able to forgive because we are forgiven, as we read earlier this morning. He was condemned so that we might not be. And then therefore, how can we be in a position to condemn others when he took our condemnation? Transformed and forgiving the sinner is our theme for today. Let's take a look at God's Word out of the Gospel of John. Then each went to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Well, that's comforting. I always thought you had to stand up to preach, so I'm glad to know I can sit down. I'm okay now. All right, let's, let's go on. <laughs> the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman standing, still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. In 1850, Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote a novel entitled The Scarlet Letter. It's based on the concept of 1600s in Boston when the Puritans were in charge. A lady named Heather is involved in an adulterous relationship. Her husband is away and yet she becomes pregnant. So she's put in prison and when she comes out with the babe in her arms... She has to wear a scarlet rag on her clothes in the shape of a large A for adultery. Now that's what I would call condemning the sinner. The reality is, if you study the Bible, you'll find a list of sins in Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. And interestingly there, sexual immorality and selfish ambition are in the same list. So if we're going to take the approach of the scarlet letter, then we really need the scarlet alphabet. We need not only the A for adultery, but we need the F for fornication, the L for lying, the M for murder, the P for profanity and pornography, the R for rape or robbery. But to be biblically fair, 
We also would have to have a B for bigotry, a C for covetousness, a D for dirty thoughts, an E for envy, a G for greed or gossip or gluttony. Ouch. How about an H for hatred? I think you get the idea. Here in our text today, the Lord Jesus shows us that when it comes to encountering sin in the life of others, it's all about the approach that we have and the attitude that we have that's involved in what we might call being forgiving toward the sinner. In our text, first of all, I see a quarrelsome question. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. This isn't the only time that Jesus encounters these religious leaders in a way where they are trying to trick him and get him in trouble. If you go over to the book of Mark, chapter 12, verse 13, some folks have come and said, Jesus, now, we know you're really wise, and so is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? You see, they really didn't care about the issue of taxation. They were hoping to get Jesus embroiled in a conflict between the Jewish people and their Roman captors. They were hoping Jesus might lead a tax revolt. And, of course, Jesus gives that wonderfully wise answer, Render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Render to God what belongs to God. Here again, they're trying to trap Jesus. They're really not concerned about rooting out or ridding their community of the sin of adultery as much as they are trying to trick or trap Jesus. You see, they're hoping that if they can get him perhaps to condemn this woman and she gets stoned, that he'll be in some kind of a controversy between Jewish religious law and Roman civil law and hurt his ministry. Or maybe they can get the people to feel that this kind, compassion, compassionate, merciful Jesus, did you hear? He sentenced a woman to death. He had her stoned. Why, he's not as kind and compassionate as we thought he was. Somehow trying to hurt or ruin the ministry of Jesus. And so they ask this question. You know, it's interesting as we evaluate the question. There is a basis biblically for what they approach Jesus about. This woman is caught in adultery and Moses said that we should put her to death. What do you say? If you go back and study the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10, Deuteronomy 22 and verse 22, both biblical admonitions in the Old Testament speak of adulterers and adulteresses being put to death. However... Realize the fact here, the Bible says this woman is caught in the act. So can I ask you a question? Where's the man? I mean, it's hard to get caught in an act of adultery by yourself. Where's the man? That's obviously an indication they're not really concerned about adultery as much as they are damaging Jesus. Number two, notice how they haul this woman out, humiliated in front of a whole public gathering of people. You know, as I studied this passage this past week, one afternoon in my study, I found myself broken down in tears. As I thought of her humiliation and I thought about how 
in my younger years of ministry and growing up, I came from a church culture where for big sins, you were hauled before the church and publicly embarrassed into repentance. And as I thought back on that, it broke my heart. And I thought about, you know, the Bible says that Joseph, the earthly stepdad of Jesus, when he learned that Mary, to whom he was not yet married, who had conceived by the Holy Ghost, he didn't know that yet. He just knew the girl that he had betrothed to was pregnant. So naturally the assumption be she slept with somebody else. She's pregnant now. You know what the Bible says about Joseph? That he was a just man. And so he was going to put her away privately. You see, he wasn't going to embarrass and humiliate her in a public way. Not this crowd. They didn't care about the woman. They were after Jesus. If humiliating her got them to hurt Jesus, all the better. And then finally, when Jesus initially, instead of answering their question, bends down and begins to write, the Bible says they kept on asking the question. They kept badgering Jesus. What do you say about this? What are you going to do about this? What should we do about this? It's as J. Vernon McGee said in his commentary. These people didn't want to stone the woman. They wanted to stone Jesus. And so then the Lord Jesus finally does respond to them. It's what we might call a convicting challenge. After writing in the dust, he stands up and says, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. There were a lot of speculative ideas about Jesus bending down and writing in the dust there. It's the only place that we know biblically that he wrote something. And we don't know what he wrote. One commentator suggested that Jesus was stalling. I found that rather insulting of the Christ. That he like, well, I've got to come up with an answer here. Another suggested that Jesus was at first ignoring them. I mean, the awkwardness of the humiliation of the woman and obviously the trickery that they were involved in. Jesus knew that. And it's as though at first he's just ignoring them. Another commentator suggested that Jesus is so hurt by this. That at first he will not answer them. His heart is twisted for this woman who's humiliated publicly. And the mean-spiritedness of these people to be willing to humiliate her to try to hurt him. Others have suggested, and perhaps appropriately so, that Jesus brings down in the dust and begins to write the sins of the people who are accusing this woman in the dust. Because the word typically for write in the Greek is graphine, but in this case it's kataphrine, which can be translated to write down a record against someone. I like my dad's perspective on it. He said he believed at first that Jesus may have been writing the big sins, adultery, murder, robbery. And boy, with stones in their hands, all those who are accusing are saying, boy, amen, Jesus, that's sin, brother. Preach it. And then Jesus stands up and says, now, he that is without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. Well, I'm not guilty of any of those. Let me put a rock on her. And then Jesus bends back down and he begins to write gossip. Lust, bitterness, 
And all of a sudden, these high and mighty folks realize he's writing about them. Sin is still sin. And from the oldest, perhaps because they were wiser or because they had more sin, they begin to drop the rocks and depart. Jesus said, he who is without sin, let him go ahead and cast the first stone. As I was reading some commentators, I liked what G. Campbell Morgan, the Bible expositor, said regarding this. He said, when I read what Jesus said here, I got out of the stone-throwing business. In other words, always condemning everybody else for their wrongs. The Bible tells us that Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7 and verse 5. Why don't you get the board out of your own eye before you go around trying to dig the splinter out of your brother's eye. In other words, Jesus is saying, you want to stone her because of her sin? May I simply remind you that all of you are sinners as well. And you know, that will help us when we have a condemning spirit toward others to just pause for a moment and look in the mirror of our own heart. You know, I've sometimes said that I believe church at times ought to be like a giant support group. I don't know if you've ever been in a support group. I believe they're helpful personally. There's something very humbling and there's something very therapeutic and something very uh, cathartic in sitting with a group of other folks on equal footing, as it were, and saying, Hi, I'm Tim and I'm I'm an alcoholic. Or, Hi, I'm Tim and I'm an overeater. Or, Hi, I'm Tim and I'm a convulsive debtor. You know, sometimes it's probably good just to come together and say, Hi, I'm Tim, and I'm a sinner. Maybe that's part of what creating this transformation of a forgiving spirit toward the sins of others is about. And you know what I find fascinating here? Jesus said, He who is without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. Now, there's only one person in that crowd who doesn't have any sin. And that's Jesus. And he doesn't pick up a stone. And that leads us to the encouraging exhortation. Jesus said to her when he asked if anybody was condemning her, and she said, no, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. You know, first first here, I see a lack of condemnation. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. That word condemn is really the idea of a strong judgment, even damning in a sense. We might understand it as denouncing someone or something as bad. And then pronouncing a sentence or a judgment or a curse upon that someone or that something because of the badness. But Jesus says here, I don't condemn you. Now why, Jesus? I mean, the Bible says if it's an adulterous stoner. But please remember, first of all, for Jesus, this is not his position, if you will, legally. 
You see, there's a time in Luke chapter 12 and verse 14 when the crowd around Jesus, someone hollers out, Hey, Jesus, will you help me with my brother? He's not agreeing to divide our inheritance correctly. And Jesus says in Luke 12 and verse 14, Man, who made me a judge and an arbiter over you? In other words, Jesus is saying, I didn't come here to be a legal authority to decide legal wranglings among you. Remember when Jesus healed the lepers? He said to them, though he's God, he is the priest of priests. When they were healed, he still said, respecting the religious authority of the day, go and show yourself to the priest. So Jesus did not come from heaven to this earth to take the position of in that setting to be a legal authority. So he's not saying, I'm going to sentence you on some legal ground. I don't condemn you. Number two, it wasn't his purpose. The Bible says wonderfully, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, John 3.17, follows John 3.16, which so many of us know, but I love John 3.17 because it says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You see, Christ did not come to be a condemner. He came to be a Savior. In fact, if you study the scriptures of the New Testament, about the only people you ever find Christ condemning are condemners. He will condemn the condemners. Again, coming from a church culture in years gone by, where there was a lot of condemnation. In fact, I can remember early in my ministry as a preacher, looking at whatever sermons I prepared with this thought in mind, what can I say, what application or illustration or biblical verse can I use to get somebody convicted so they know they need to get down the aisle and get right with God because if it doesn't kick somebody in the shins and get them down the aisle, it's been a failure of a sermon. Let me tell you about the culture of condemnation, even among the righteous. You become suspicious of others, thinking there must be something wrong with them. You become skeptical, even of the good they do, that somehow, even the good they do must be tainted with some kind of wrong. And finally, you become superior, thinking you are better than the others. And particularly when you encounter some sin in somebody's life, we're not so quick to be forgivers as we are to be condemners. But study the life of Jesus. Almost all his condemnation was reserved for those who were condemners of others. I see not only here lack of condemnation, I see a caution. The Lord Jesus does say to her, go now and leave your life of sin. I mean, the Lord Jesus did call the adultery sin. He knew Exodus 20 and verse 14, one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You know, it's interesting. 
I grew up on the King James Version of the Bible, and in that particular uh, Bible, you'll find that this passage we've read is just like any other passage, but in the more modern translations, you'll find that there are footnotes or there are brackets saying that this passage is not found in some of the earlier manuscripts. And the respected great saint of God, Saint Augustine, said the reason it was omitted, from his perspective, the reason it was omitted in some of the earlier manuscripts is because as people read this, they thought Jesus was like almost permitting people to commit adultery. I mean, like Jesus was being soft on sin. So maybe we better not include this passage because he doesn't condemn. And yet if you study this verse right here, Jesus does call it sin and Jesus does tell her to stop. And so... As forgiving as we are, sin is still sin. I remember as a boy, uh, we lived in a neighborhood where Mr. Smoyer lived. And Mr. Smoyer and his sons would always drive their trash truck by the homes of our neighborhood and take the trash cans we put out in the front yard and dump all the trash in. Well, years later now, every Monday at my home, the trash still goes out. But we no longer have a trash man. We have a waste manager who comes. But I got news for you, whether you're a trash man or a waste manager is still picking up garbage. Sin is still sin. The Lord Jesus did not soft pedal on sin. He said adultery is sin. And he told the woman that she ought to stop it. I like that old fellow down south. Somebody said to him, what do you think about sin? He said, well, I'm against it. And so was Jesus. So I don't want it to be misunderstood here. But what's beautiful about this is Jesus, in a sense, is giving her a second chance. He said, look, what's done's done. Now I want you to go and do better. I want you to go and now live a wholesome life for me. You know, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, there's now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You know why? Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ died for our sins. Yes, sin is sin. But Jesus came not to condemn us in our sins, but to save us from our sins. And that's the encouragement here and the challenge to the woman. Go forth now and do better. And you know, if I could get one point across to all of us today, it's this, that when Jesus Christ encountered the sin in this woman's life, the thing that he did not do is he did not write her off. So often if we lack that transformed, forgiving spirit, when we encounter sin in somebody else, there is a tendency within our flesh to, as it were, write that person off. I'm so glad the Bible's full of people who weren't written off. You can go to the uh, uh, genealogy of Jesus in in Matthew chapter 1 verse 3. The Bible says, and there are only four ladies out of all the men, there are only four ladies that are listed in the genealogy of Jesus. And the first is in verse 3 of Matthew 1, and this is Tamar, who pretended to be a prostitute and engaged her ex-father-in-law in an intimate union so she could get pregnant. But amazingly, while we would write her off, the Spirit of God writes her in the genealogy of Jesus. 
You come down to verse 5 and you have Rahab. She didn't pretend to be a prostitute. She was a prostitute. And yet she turned to the God of Israel, married a leader in the tribe of Judah, and becomes an ancestress of Jesus Christ. The Holy Ghost didn't write her off. He wrote her into the genealogy of Jesus. You come down to verse 6. And you have there Bathsheba, not mentioned by name, but the wife of Uriah, who was in an adulterous union with King David. And yet the Bible does not give us record that the Holy Ghost wrote her off, but rather he wrote her in. In other words, there was forgiveness at some point to allow them to go beyond the sin. There was still life and blessing and God's goodness ahead. And when we encounter others who have sinned, big or little, may we, in that forgiving spirit of transformation, not write them off, but acknowledge what has happened and say, let us go forward to do better. I love Hebrews 11.32, where the Holy Ghost, in inspiration, causes the writer of Hebrews to list Samson, Samson, among the Hall of Faith members. Samson, yes, the strongest man in the world. Samson, yes, judge of Israel for 20 years. But Samson, repeatedly immoral. Yet in the Hall of Faith, by the grace of God. I can't tell you how many times through years of my own struggle, I have held on to Hebrews 11.32 when I have doubted whether I ever deserved God's salvation or not. Samson. We have a tendency when we encounter sin in others to write them off. Jesus said, I don't condemn you. Now go forward. Leave the sin behind. Do better. What do we learn today? Number one, like Joseph of old instead of these accusers, if we encounter sin in another, let us deal with it discreetly and sensitively. Number two, when we encounter sin in others, let us remember we are sinners ourselves. And Jesus tells us through the writings of Paul, we're to forgive as God forgave us. And number three, when we encounter sin in others, let us not write them off. They're finished spiritually. Let us realize the scriptures again and again speak of those who went on to the blessing of God, even after sin. I will forever lift my eyes to Calvary. To view the cross where Jesus died for me. How marvelous the grace that caught my falling soul. He looked beyond my fault and saw my need. He looked beyond my fault and saw my need. A forgiving spirit in forgiving the sinner is when, like the Savior, 
We encounter the sinner's sin, but we look beyond the sinner's sin and see the sinner's sin. 